I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello, welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. Now this week, we're going to talk about a rather small subject, but one with big consequences. We mean babies. Why aren't we having as many children as we used to? Why does parenthood no longer follow on from marriage? And what are the consequences, not least for governments? Now, to start us off, we're going to look at births. And our starting fact is from 6 to 1.6. That's the fertility rate per woman, the number of live births a woman would be expected to have in her lifetime in the UK from the beginning of the 19th century, when it was 6, to 1.6 today. So what's going on here, Rachel? This seems like a very dramatic change. It is, I think, one of the most dramatic uh, trends of the last century or two. Now, I think the first thing we should know is that that fertility rate, how many children women were expected to have, was pretty consistent across the world and in every continent. So you would have around six children per woman. A huge number of those children died in 1800. Around a third of children died before they hit five. At the beginning of the 20th century, it was still nearly a quarter And as we can talk about later, it's now very, very small indeed. But you would have those children. But then we started to see a real divergence between continents. So first in Europe, then in America, which used to have the highest birth rate in the world. And most recently and most startlingly and rapidly in Asia, birth rates have been declining. And Africa is now the only continent where births are comfortably above what we call replacement rate. Do you want to define replacement rate, John? Yeah, yes, indeed. Replacement rate is the number of children um, that a a woman needs to have in order to ensure that the population remains at a constant level. And that figure is around uh, 2.1 babies per woman. And it's obviously a bit above two because some people die and some people can't have children. Indeed. But uh, but it's it's a little bit above two. So so Africa is the only continent now which is above two. And even there, it's declining. It's now around four. Uh, and it's very plausible that if current trends continue, that in this century, we will be below replacement level in every continent in the world. I'm beginning to think, Rachel, you're already giving us some clues as to why all this is happening because you've mentioned child mortality and you've also mentioned the difference between Europe and Africa and I take it that at least in part is to do with economic growth, economic transformation Um, and certainly that for example if you look at the five or six countries with the highest fertility rates now top of the, uh, the, the tail seems to be Niger um, and there are countries like Mali, the Central African Republic, still have very high fertility rates. But these are now amongst the poorest countries in the world. So there must be something going on here. 
Absolutely. And there's something going on about wealth both between countries and actually within countries. What, okay. what used to be the case, which is that people had children if they could afford them. Now people don't have children uh, if they can afford them. But we'll, we'll, we'll first go back a bit in time and, and look at what in the 20th century happened that might explain this radical fall in fertility rate. Now, the first thing we've already talked about, which is mortality. It, it seems extraordinary today that you would not be at all sure that you would survive childbirth. You know, my, my ancestors would not necessarily have known that they were going to survive having children. And you certainly wouldn't have been sure that your children would survive the first few years of their life because they were very likely to die of many of the infectious diseases that we invented, inoculations for um, and treatments for antibiotics. So is the argument then that basically parents who in the end, let's say, wanted two or three adult children were basically accepting that there was a risk that some of their children would not survive and therefore they had five or six in the hope that at least two or three would survive through to adulthood. Now, I suspect it was never quite that conscious, but certainly we do see a decline in the number of children people have as child mortality decreases. But that's not the only and possibly not even the main thing that's going on. The, the two really big changes which are interrelated that also happened are, one, as we got richer as, as, a, as countries and as continents, women started to get educated. Women started to have jobs and economic opportunities of their own. And that means that women faced uh, different what economists call opportunity costs. So the consequence of having a child started to look quite different for a woman in the 20th century where they had a job uh, and earlier in the 20th century they might be forced to give up their job if they got married and then had children. And now still there are big time consequences to having children. Whereas in, say, the 19th century or in less developed countries in the 20th century, your life wouldn't really be very dramatically different in terms of your economic activity, whether you had children or not. So that's one huge thing that happened. And the second related is we invented contraception, which more reliable, cheap contraception. Yeah, no, that's though that obviously is much more recent. I mean, that's kind of 1960 almost, particularly Absolutely. with the absence of the pill, right? So so there, there are, there, these really big things are surely, you know, I mean, to put it in a colloquial terms, women could find better things to do, one, and two... Given that uh, their children had a better chance of surviving into adulthood, there wasn't the need to bring up so many children anyway, even if you still want to. But in a sense, what you're re really saying is that, well, um, if I can go out to work, or indeed I can use the, the skills I've acquired through education in, in other ways, right, that I don't therefore necessarily want to spend quite so much time looking after children and therefore... Um, women decide to have fewer babies. It certainly changes the calculation, I think. And and although you're right, contraception happened after that first big fall, as you've pointed out, John and others, there are there is a sort of second fall that you see even in developed countries in the 60s, 70s onwards, as you know, women might consciously decide they didn't want children, but before the advent of regular contraception, it was much more unreliable. I don't, I don't know if you ever watch Call the Midwife, John. I, I watch Call the occasionally, Midwife occasionally. obsessively when I had my first baby. I used to watch it in the middle of the night when I was <laughs> up uh, in feeding sessions, and there were all these, you know, wonderful um, episodes about women who 
despite living in real poverty, uh, sort of face desperation and agony when they realise that they've become pregnant for the sixth or seventh time and couldn't afford the child because, of course, there was no contraception that was reliable and abortion was illegal Illegal. and in itself very dangerous. I mean, in 1964, um, the fertility rate in the UK actually reached its post-war high of 2.9. So this is just after the advent of the of, of contraception um and then um by um 2021 now it's you know it's it's down to the 1.6 that you quoted earlier so um we can see even more recently that seemingly in the wake of the advent of contraception and of course also one should say the availability of abortion where social attitudes have shifted, uh, that we've seen yet a further decline in the the fertility rate uh, 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 during the course of the basically the last 20, 30, 40 years. So I guess if we summarise all of this together, when countries become healthier and richer, people choose to have fewer children and they're confident those children will live. As women begin to have more opportunities, the trade-off of having children changes. And with the advent of contraception and safe and legal abortion to a lesser degree, you are completely in control, well, much more in control of that decision whether to have children. I think there is one more thing that has happened and then we can discuss this, which is what it means to have and bring up a child has also changed in the 20th century. So one of the things you see across countries, and certainly across developed countries, is both parents, but particularly women, spend vastly more time on their children. They spend much less time on household tasks because we've automated most of those. We have vacuum cleaners and all of those things. We spend vastly more time on this uh, rather modern creation called parenting. Why do we spend more time parenting? Um, is it because we've got fewer children and therefore we value them more, or is there something else going on? Well, John, you're the you're the parenting generation, so you might be able to tell me you're the hinge generation that began to parent. But uh, uh, I think that it seems to be partly that creating a very successful adult now requires them to be very intensively educated. And that requires a lot of input from the parents, including money and time. And we should talk about the differences between countries in a minute. But you see a really big difference between how much money and time educated parents uh, have on their children versus less educated parents. So to be successful, you need to intensively put into uh, children. We freed up some time that we're not spending on household tasks. When the so, woman, but, but, that, but, but remember, the women are still going out to work. So, you, so there's a bit of a paradox here, right? So you're saying yes. to me, we're much more concerned to parent, but this concern is coming from at least women who are going out to work who 60, 70 years ago wouldn't have gone out to work and question mark would have had more time to parent. Can you explain this paradox to me? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question, actually, because it's not completely clear from the data. I, I suspect a lot of what we call parenting, um, which is kind of intense time we spend with our children devoted to the child, would have been slightly inconceivable to a woman in the 1930s or 1940s who would have dragged their child along when they went shopping and chucked <laughs> them out on the street to play, which we tend not to do anymore. We, we don't sort of let our children out and free and roam. Instead, we have them indoors because we think it's safe mm-hmm. uh, or at least supervised, and that requires huge amounts of labour from the parent. But, but the reason I think this matters is it's that opportunity cost point. So if on the one side, you have a greater potential loss of 
income and career opportunities from having a child. On the other side, having a rich child requires more input, financial and time than it used to. And and these together, along with the view that if you do have a child, you'll probably be fine and they'll probably be fine and you'll bring them up successfully to adulthood, it's probably a big part of why we're seeing these very big declining birth rates. But hang on, Rachel, can, can, we, can we explain why it's more expensive? I mean, are you, are, are you saying that as parents, we're just all indulgent and we're buying our kids more toys and digital facilities, et cetera, et cetera, um, and that's why they're expensive or is something else going on here? Well, one of the things that is going on, certainly not the only, is that we spend a lot more money on education and things that we think are going to ensure the child's success in the future. And you particularly see that with more educated parents. And you see it particularly intensively in other countries, particularly East Asia. So uh, you may be familiar with the attempts of the Chinese government and the South Korean governments to crack down on the ever-expanding tutoring industry in their countries and try and stop Korean students from sitting there at midnight in the library with their tutors or licensed tutoring and, and cramp it down in China, usually to no avail, because parents feel that they're in an arms race and they're spending more and more money on um, on education and things that might make a big difference to their children's future. But presumably it's also, it's, it's not just, I mean, spending money. It's, you, you mentioned earlier, it's about time. And presumably it's also about the fact that parents now say, well, I have, you know, I'm, I I'm pretty much understand that if my child is going to learn to read at a reasonable age, that I need to spend a lot of time every evening, A, it's bath time, and B, then I've got to read to my kids and get them involved in books, etc., etc. And then when they're a little bit older, I've got to listen to them read. And it's the time that's spent in interacting with children in order to facilitate their educational development simply through, you know, the various forms of parental inter- parental interaction. So, so it's not just money, it's time as well, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we're now getting into the world where it's less obvious from the data. But um, I've been reading to my son the Famous Five books in the last few weeks. And one of the things that's really noticeable when you read books like The Famous Five, which is set in the 50s onwards, is these kids who are between the age of sort of 10 and 12-ish leave the house in the morning and go rowing and on all sorts of improbable adventures with their dog and then turn up around tea time, eat vast numbers of scones and then disappear again, occasionally overnight, to very little input from the parents. And indeed, the father in the story considers them to be a nuisance and just shouts at them to be quiet whenever they disturb his work. But this is a this is a reason, you know, a slightly idealised, but not completely absurd image of what childhood was like. I mean, John, I'd be interested in, in, in your childhood, presumably like, you know, my parents, you spent much of it playing outside. Oh, yes. Um, uh, we spend quite plenty of time. So, I mean, I think there are other things going on here, which is to do with people's concerns about safety, et cetera, et cetera, um, and road safety. So, you know, I mean, I was allowed, I can certainly remember going, walking to infant school at around the age of six. Um, uh, I can certainly remember, uh, particularly on long summer evenings, being, we used to go out and play football together on the field. I mean, there wasn't what, I mean, there's one clear rule, which was there was a time when you were meant to be home. And that was the point, that was the, that was the safety point. Yeah, because I think the basic point that we're, that we're making is that um, becoming a parent involves giving up more and it involves more time and money than it used to. But then is it also the case that parents who themselves have had a very expensive education, been to university 
or whatever, and who perhaps also are, you know, got other things to do in terms of their employment, that they are the ones who are also particularly inclined to invest in their children. Yeah. And finally, of course, what graduates tend to do is have children much later. So if you look at uh, women who are in sort of semi-routine or routine occupations, so sort of non-graduate occupations, they're still much more likely to have children in their 20s. For professional women, the majority of them are going to be having children in their 30s or even increasingly their 40s. So this sort of horrible phrase that the NHS uses of the geriatric mother from the age of 35. My my mother was 35 when she had me. I was the youngest. And she was seen as a bit of a curiosity. And now she would be ubiquitous. And I think this this explains, before we move on to to our sort of second subject to marriage, this explains why some of the attempts by our European counterparts um, who have kind of gone on a very family values, traditional family message, uh, both in their political campaigning, but also in trying to encourage people to have children, have had absolutely zero effect. Because uh, fundamentally, this is about a individual and household calculation that has changed uh, dramatically over the 20th century. We should say one thing, though, before we move on, which is because this all sounds very sterile. Uh, we tend to really love our children and be very happy when we have our children and, and love our grandchildren, which is it is still the case and has been consistently the case that uh, women particularly say they want more children than they end up having. So there are constraints on this, um, again, partly because of those opportunity costs, partly potentially because of other costs that have increased over the last few yeah. decades, yeah. which means that we would actually quite like families that are a bit bigger than we have. Yeah, and of course, if you do have your first child relatively late in life, fertility does decline into the 30s. So therefore, you know, you may have tried for a second or subsequent child and and, and not succeeded. And that's one of, the, again, the, the trade-offs that women are considering about when... On the one hand, often for those in middle class jobs, the career pressure is to delay as long as possible and establish yourself in your career before you take the time out. On the other hand, in terms of fertility, the pressure is in the other direction. And that's a trade off that many women are these days having to consider as they try to plan out their lives. In a moment, we'll discuss whether babies are still tied to marriage or not. First, though, a short break. So when I was a kid in the playground, and I've noticed my daughter still does this, there was the rhyme about first came love, then came marriage, then came the baby in the baby carriage. And we've talked about the baby in the baby carriage, but we haven't talked about what was always seen as the precursor, which is you get married. Is that still true? Yeah. Uh, The last couple of years, 2021 and 22, just over a half of live births in England and Wales have been born to women who are neither married nor in a civil partnership. Whereas in contrast, in the 1970s, only around 10% of uh, live births were to women who weren't married. And if you go back to the 1920s, when illegitimacy, quote unquote, still had legal impact on the children, uh, the figure was less than 5%. So there's been a dramatic turnaround, really in the course of the last 40 years, where getting married and having children that link has been very substantially broken. So, John, I tried to explain why I thought, or the academics think, birth rates have declined over Mm -hmm. the last century or so. Why have we seen such a decline in marriage and such an increased willingness to have children outside marriage? Well, I think in part, 
the story is one which is similar to the one we've already been telling, which is that women are now more likely to have education, to have their own qualifications. They're more likely to be involved in the labour market. And if you bear in mind that marriage is in many respects an economic contract as well as a relationship contract, you know, clearly, historically, many women would be looking for a good match. And a good match meant a man who had good economic and financial prospects and who therefore would be able to provide the woman with a adequate uh, financial uh, world. But if women have their own financial resources and their own access to the labour market, thanks to rising levels of educational attainment, then they're less economically dependent on men. Um, so therefore, that makes it easier for them to say, well, no, I'm just going to live on my own or I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not, certainly not going to get married to somebody. Um, uh, and uh, equally, of course, if they are in a relationship and they don't feel it's working out, they're in a better position to break that relationship, get divorced, or if they're not married in the first place, just ending uh, the cohabiting relationship. So to some extent, at least, therefore, the decline of marriage and the decline of births has a common factor, which is the very changed nature in terms of education and labour market involvement of women. And this, in a sense, these are just big structural forces which have changed marriage and birth. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that difference between socioeconomic groups that you see with births. So uh, people from lower socioeconomic groups have children earlier. They still have a slightly higher birth rate. You also see in marriage in that... Um, People with high levels of education who have children are still generally likely to be married. It's decreased a bit. It was about 86% of them were married in the 1990s. It's gone to um, to about 68%. But they're vastly more likely to be married. Whereas if you're from a low education background, uh, in the latest data I can see, which is 2012, only 17, 17% of women were married at the time of the birth of their child. So what seems to be going on is that it is possible now with the independence of women and economic opportunities to have a child without wedlock. But if you want one of those really time-intensive, resource-intensive children, and perhaps because you are also more likely to have property, um, the incentive still seems to be to get married. And, and, and then when you go really up the scale and this is American data, you look at millionaires and billionaires, they start getting divorced again. They can afford to do it all <laughs> on their but, own. But of course, it, is, it isn't just an, an issue of incentive. So I, there's a slight paradox here that, as it were, the educational attainment that's labor, women to go to the labour market, as it were, however, doesn't necessarily have most impact on those who have the highest levels of educational attainment. But, um, of course, what's uh, also true is that the people who get married are the people who are... A, more likely to have investment in property and there where getting married still potentially makes a difference given yeah. the current state of the law in England and Wales. But they can also afford to get married. You know, um, getting married these days can be, at least doesn't have to be, but a rather expensive business. So, Well, that's a choice, though. Indeed. I mean, they could get married in their backyard. Um, um, indeed, indeed. But, you know, a lot of people don't. So to that extent, at least, yes, we are uh, talking about, in a sense, therefore... Um, 
uh, women, uh, there's a paradox in the sense that women who have the most potential economic freedom are the ones who, if they do get involved in relationships, still seem to seek the security of marriage. Uh, my, my, our wonderful producer, who is much younger than either of us, uh, has, been, has been showing me some messages uh, as we've been going on, saying that she at best hopes to get married in her corridor, but she won't get married at all because Tinder is so awful. Um, <laughs> but, which, of course, is another shift we don't have time to talk about, which is uh, how we meet our spouses has now changed. I was just old enough to not be the core... Uh, uh, meet your partner online generation. But now all of my younger colleagues have met their boyfriends and girlfriends and partners uh, through I'm online t- dating I'm, t- I'm tempted now to go deeply personal and ask you how you met your partner, but I, w- I won't go down that track. That's actually a good story, but I'm not going to tell it this episode. I, I'll I'm let sure, my way I'm out sure. to that. <laughs> well, may, may, maybe we can look forward to it later on. But um, <laughs> there is another part to this story, of course. I'm old enough to remember a woman having a child out of wedlock. This still had a social stigma attached to it in the 50s and 60s. Indeed, um, in thinking about all of this, and I'm sorry, I will now admit I'm, I'm one of these, I'm a long-standing follower of the Archers. And, the, and of course, soap opera is a very good insight into the way societies change. Now, one of the characters who recently died, Jennifer Aldridge, um, in the 60s, had a child out of wedlock. And there was... I thought they just farmed on the arches. I always no, had to no, 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 it's, it's, it's much it's more complicated than that. Than that. Okay. So, I mean, so, so, you know, so, so, you know, her position and whether or not her family were going to support and all the rest of it. I mean, this, this was a big, big issue. Now, her niece, Helen... Uh, not only had a child out of wedlock, but also had a child through artificial insemination because she didn't think she was going to meet so many relationships. Now, that story developed. Um, But, you know, this was something that wasn't, frankly, of comment. Um, And this does illustrate, you know, what is a broader um, uh, social change. And it's both in terms of attitudes towards living together and also attitudes towards having children. So, um, British social attitudes. Um, actually, first reading we've got there is 1994. But he, and even at that stage, 64% thought it was OK for people to live together without getting married. Now the figure is 81%. Um, but as recently as the late 1980s, 70% of people still felt that if you want to have children, you ought to get married now that figure is down to 24%. So we can see how now basically people having children out of once we called wedlock is now regarded almost as a social norm rather than something that's the object of social stigma. I suppose the final sort of transformation we should mention briefly is uh, that marriages no longer have to be between men and women. Um, so we now have the rise of same-sex marriage. It, it's still very small. I think 97% of marriages in the last year for which we have good data were opposite-sex marriages as opposed to same-sex. But we have it's one of the other ways in which we have a sort of shift in um, what we think marriage is about and for. And it is no longer the case here that marriage is about having children. That's not the case everywhere. And uh, I know you get fed up with me talking about South Korea, John, but but I think it's interesting <laughs> that, you know, South Korea, which has the worst or the lowest, worst or best, depending on how you think about it, lowest fertility rate uh, in the world, is also somewhere where children, w- women do not have children out of wedlock. There's still a huge cultural pressure to get married before you yep. have children, as a result of which pe- women neither get married nor have children. 
And of course, one of the reasons for, what, for the cultural change, of course, because you've, you know, marriage for some people is a religious institution. We've seen the decline of religion in our, in our yeah. society. But intriguingly, what you then discover, and this comes back to some of what you and I talked about, about religion just before Christmas. Um, if we look at those from migrant community, they're more likely to get married. They are also less likely to think that it's fine for uh, people uh, uh, to have children um, uh, who, who aren't who aren't married, and of course, you know, for the, the, the religious attendance, etc., uh, for them, an attachment is still much higher. So, again, one of the reasons why the social pressure has declined is because, you know, marriage was imp very much a religious institution as well as a um, a legal institution. And that religious bit has now largely gone. Now, of course, the introduction of civil partnerships was partly introduced in order to allow for people who don't agree, don't want to get married because they didn't want to sign up to a religious institution uh, to be able to do so. But it's not obvious at the moment so far that this had a great deal of impact on the willingness of heterosexual couples to get to arrange I mean, the numbers are... Arrangement vanishingly small for civil yeah. partnerships at the moment, aren't they? They haven't grown. And, yeah, and we, we, we should mention that at least at the moment in the UK, foreign-born mothers and fathers are much more likely to have children than uh, UK-born. And I, I looked this up earlier, uh, which just slightly surprised me, that apparently the most common um, nationality for a mother in the UK is Romanian, and the most common nationality for a father in the UK is Pakistani. Yeah, indeed. I and a quite substantial proportion of children born in this country are to parents who were uh, born in this country. Although, of course, we should remember migrants tend to be younger, so it's not surprising they have yeah. more children. And the but it won't, we can't necessarily assume that the children of migrants will necessarily um, be the same. They may well end up adopting the practices of the population that they've now joined. But I guess, Rachel, before we conclude, uh, we should come to our third topic, which in a sense is the, is the so what question. So here's a, an opening statistic on this. If we go back just to... 2000 uh, in the UK, um, for every one person who was aged over 65, there were four people who were of working age. Now, the ratio is for every one person over 65, there are three people of working age, but by 2050, is expected to be down to one to two. In other words, we end up with far fewer people of working age who perhaps are generating the taxes that fund the health service that the older people use. Uh, so I suppose before we talk about the public policy consequence of this, I should say this obviously just matters because by definition, my parents' most consequential decision for me was to have me. And uh, having children has been the most consequential decision of, of my life. But what does it mean for governments? And we talked about this last week when we talked about benefits, which is that over the last uh, decade or two, the amount of money we've spent on pensioners has risen enormously. That's partly because we're already in an ageing society. And so pensioners vote. There are more of them. And therefore, they tend to vote for things that, that benefit them. Surprise, surprise. Another thing that's happened over the last few years, mostly unnoticed by the public, is NHS spending has started to increase again very, very significantly. Yep. And uh, the health think tanks like the Health Foundation predict that just to keep track 
of the demographic pressures, we're looking at three and a half to four percent increases in the health budget year on year in real terms, which means unless the economy is growing by that much, which it certainly isn't at the moment, more and more of our GDP is going to have to go into health because old people are expensive in health terms. So, but then this obviously raises one question, which is, well, having an older population isn't so much of a problem for the health service so long as that older population doesn't get seriously ill uh, any uh, further away from their death than they did so previously, right? So it's the years of poor health. Um, so therefore, why, Rachel, aren't governments doing more about things that we know lead to uh, ill health in later life, like obesity? What do you think, John? Well, it seems to be that the, the certainly we've had this whole row about the sugar tax, which, of course, is one of the reasons as to why um, obesity uh, is as high as it is. And there just seems to be, uh, you know, there, there's some politicians who feel that it's not the responsibility of the state to tell people what to do and how to live their lives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and therefore, as a result, they, they become reluctant to intervene because they're concerned about unpopularity. Of course, that problem also arises with what you might regard as another solution to this problem, which is just increase the retirement age. At the moment, I've just said, you know, I've quoted the ratio to the people aged 16 to 64. Well, if we increase the retirement age to 70, then we'll have more working people in their spa. And I, and I think this is going to be one of the great battles of the next few decades, because, of course, if you have more and more voters who are older, they are unlikely to be keen on being forced to work longer. Most people are not like... I suspect you, John, who loves your job and wants to do every day. Most people are desperate to retire. Although it is true that there are more people like myself. You know, I mean, I'm now 70 and I'm still in employment. And it is true that some older people are now that we have uh, we, we got rid of the uh, legislation that enabled le employers to get rid of people at age 65, um, that some people are now choosing to carry on in employment, not necessarily in full-time employment, maybe in part-time, again, partly for economic reasons. They realise that perhaps they've got another 20 years of life and they can't necessarily live simply off the whatever savings they've got for a pension. Absolutely. And I think one of, one of the things that people should do when they're choosing their career is look at in what careers do people choose to work way on retirement age? And that academics seem to do really well at this. So I think it's a it's a big plug oh, well, for just, academia we, we, that you, we, we, you want to keep going. We just can't stop. Yeah, you I just know. can't stop. OK, so so you would have to raise the retirement age. That, that tends to result in big battles. We've actually done better at raising the retirement age in the UK. We have raised it somewhat. We've raised it quite a lot for women um, compared to other countries, but this is a very big live debate. I also think the health spending question is is more complex because um, let's assume, you know, the, the, the founder of the NHS uh, had this view that health spending was going to fall off a cliff at some point because uh, we would cure everybody of things and then people would just die. But of course, people die of more and more expensive things later and later. You know, there, there is one view yeah. where we cure people of all the things that are, they're currently dying of, and then they just slowly get dementia and fall apart. Yeah, well, that's not cheap, yeah. uh, as well as being a slightly miserable future to look forward to. So so it's not obvious that you end health uh, pressures by treating the things that are currently making people ill. The, the two obvious solutions are you make people work for much longer or you discover 
a magic form of unbelievably increased productivity and wealth. So, so maybe Gen AI, generative AI, is going to save us all. Or, because we already referred to the fact that they're more likely to have children, um, we have more migrants. And we increase our working age, working age population by attracting Absolutely. people inside the UK. And that has been, the in, in effect, the policy decision we have been making in the UK, even more than other countries, for a number of years. That also, at some point, is going to have to end if the rest of the world is also falling below replacement rates, of course. Yep. Or another p- p- policy, which, again, this current government is, is has been dealing with, is... Um, we try to ensure that even more of our population of working age go out to work by subsidising their childcare. But as we've already said, actually, if we get more women going out into work, this may mean that their fertility rate goes down. Um, So there's potentially a paradox here as well. So I think the honest truth is that what we're discovering is that while um, indeed, indeed, um, you can uh, you know, concern about declining uh, uh, fertility rates is a long-standing concern. I mean, it, it was a concern at the time of the Boer War when these things first declined, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's long been a, a, a concern, um, but that actually, well, a crucial lesson, and it's everything we've been saying in this podcast, is that in the end. Attempts by governments to change this tend not to have much impact. Even the China one-child policy now being stopped hasn't made much difference in China. It's so it's the social, economic, and structural changes um, uh, that are crucial. But then equally, therefore, the things that governments might do to try to mitigate, if that's the right word, the the, the forces that they cannot control, all come seemingly with politically potentially difficult downsides which means therefore we are probably still going to continue to have angst about the fact that we don't have uh, as many babies as we once did and of course then also i mean some countries you know uh, get concerned about the fact that if their populations are perhaps going to start to go down if we're not replacing population well that's fewer potential people who can join an army or a navy it also just simply means also that your economy is smaller but there's also another aspect to this, and it's particularly obviously to do with the other so what question is the fact that we now have so many children born uh, uh, to parents who are not married, which is in England and Wales, at least, the law hasn't really caught up with the rise of cohabitation. Um, and that if you're cohabiting there and you, your relationship breaks up, well, A, you know, your rights in terms of property are nothing like what they were if you're involved in marriage. But secondly, also, particularly as far as children are concerned, you know, whereas f- uh, fathers in a marriage relationship have very clear uh, uh, continuing rights with access to their children, etc., etc., in normal circumstances, if you're cohabiting, that's not necessarily the case. And there is, therefore, there's long been an argument to do what Scotland's already done, which is that the law needs to catch up with the change in the way in which families are formed and unformed. And that whereas perhaps there's been an inclination perhaps by some politicians who are concerned that if we make it easier for people to cohabit, we encourage cohabitation and cohabitation is a less stable relationship and that's not a good thing. On the other hand, if we don't catch up uh, with what seems to be in the end a social practice over which politicians don't really have much control, 
then maybe it might be better to change the law. But that's obviously potentially a subject of some controversy. But I think that that is something that we haven't had time to talk about today and, and we should look at in future episodes, which is what does this actually mean for the children themselves? Because being a child has also changed dramatically over the last century and it does have consequences uh, for the future. Th- this has potentially been a bit doom and gloomy. No, nobody's having children anymore. It's going to be really expensive. Uh, no one wants to get married. Can you think of an uplifting note to end us on, John? Yes, I think the alter- the other way of thinking about it is that we now really value the children that we do have. And we as parents uh, don't just bring our children into the world, but we also try to help our children enter at the world. Um, and hopefully, perhaps prejudging the question you said we shouldn't address, maybe that's good for our children. But... Anyway, we will see. Um, We can come back to this subject. That's it from Trendy for this week. Uh, We've used research from a huge number of sources for this, but thanks particularly to Phoebe Arslanagic Wakefield, uh, who gave me some of the data points we used and along with a number of other women is doing a lot of research on this subject at the moment. And I should also thank my mother, Alison Wolfe, who wrote one of the seminal books on this subject uh, a number of years ago, The XX Factor, on how women's lives have changed over the last century. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm John Curtis. We'll be back next week. A reminder that Trendy is now available on Tortoise News, which is where you can also listen to the news meeting and Tortoise's daily sensemaker. Search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise.